0: Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 115. Speak and Destroy is the first podcast to feature interviews about Metallica, and I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is Alec Berg, co-creator of HBO's Barry with Bill Hader, a director, a writer, a producer. His credits include Seinfeld, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and working alongside Mike Judge as showrunner for Silicon Valley. If you're unfamiliar... Barry is one of the greatest dramas, dark comedies of the last few years. It's a half-hour series on HBO as I'm recording this episode. It just wrapped up its third season last night. It stars Bill Hader as an ex-Marine turned hitman turned struggling Hollywood actor. And even that description just barely scratches the surface. Hader is joined in the cast by the fantastic Sarah Goldberg, who is just phenomenal on that show. The legendary Henry Winkler a.k.a. the Fawns from Happy Days and the Principal from Scream. Anthony Kerrigan as NoHo Hank, probably the biggest breakout from the show. And the great Steven Root, who disappears into everything he does, whether it's playing a judge on Justified, one of my favorite shows ever, doing the voice of Bill on King of the Hill, or, of course, the red stapler, obsessed, building-burning Milton in Office Space. Those of you who've listened to the podcast before probably know that my main passions in life are music, film, and comedy. I'm a big SNL fan, and in all of the SNL-adjacent media I've absorbed over the years, I did learn at some point that Bill Hader is at least a passing fan of both Metallica and The Misfits. I was nevertheless shocked and stoked to discover when watching the pilot of Barry that in the home of the character Barry Berkman hung a Garage Days EP-era Metallica poster. Way back then, I put it down in my notes of potential future guests, both Hayter and Alec Berg, and was reminded of it all over again when Season 3 started airing and there was actual Metallica music in the show, to say nothing of the episode that featured a Pantera song rather prominently. I reached out to Alec, inviting him onto the podcast, and it turns out that not only is he a metal fan... But he saw some of the first few performances from Armored Saint as he grew up in Pasadena. So we talk a bunch about all sorts of things. Uh, And and yet there were still things that I'd like to have him back on to talk about. Uh, For example, he wrote an episode of Herman's Head. If you know what I'm talking about there, you can understand why I might have wanted to ask. But uh, he really credits his experience on the last four years of Seinfeld as his school of writing, so to speak. You'll hear us talk about that here in the episode. If you're a big Seinfeld fan, you'll recognize his name is itself a bit of a Seinfeld Easter egg. He's written for film as well as television, uh, including contributing to Late Night with Conan O'Brien. Like Conan O'Brien and many veterans of SNL, Alec went to Harvard. He was an executive producer on Curb Your Enthusiasm. He worked on Sacha Baron Cohen's The Dictator as an EP on Silicon Valley. And, of course, is the co-creator and executive producer of Barry. He's directed a lot of the episodes, written a lot of the episodes, and has his fingerprints all over it, just like Mr. Hater. Barry has justifiably been nominated for dozens and dozens of awards, including 30 different Emmys. Hater's won twice for Outstanding Lead Actor in a Comedy Series, while Henry Winkler won once himself. Kerrigan, Stephen Root, and Winkler all received Emmy nominations for Outstanding Supporting Actor and for the second season, and Goldberg was herself nominated for Best Supporting Actress. So, hop in the trunk with Alec, Mr. Cousineau, and myself, and get ready for a wild ride covering all sorts of fun topics. So, here it is my conversation with Alec Berg. This is Speak and Destroy. <laughs> I have a million things that I could talk to you about. I made some bullet points notes. Uh, I think it's, it's one of those things, you know, I've realized over the years that every person in the music business is fascinated by the TV and movie business and, and vice versa. And vice versa. Yeah. (laughs) You know, Johnny Depp wanted to be, you know, Keith Richards or Noel Gallagher and ended up Johnny Depp. And then, and then you, you know, interview someone like Bradley Cooper and, he wants to talk about metallica you know so he, for me it's it's mu- music movies and comedy those are my collective passions so
1: I'm, all right well i can i can speak half acidly about
0: one of those <laughs> <laughs> well you can de- you can certainly speak eloquently about uh about one of those i, n- I know as well i can speak i don't know you can speak the, the eloquence will, I'll, I'll leave up to you well, I'm gonna jump off in the present and then go work backwards if that's cool with you. Yeah, whatever.
1: Uh, Look, I'm still trying to figure out what the hell I'm doing on here.
0: So okay, perfect. I, I wore, <laughs> I wore my old school armored saint. Yeah, shirt you
1: did. Just so that there's some, <laughs> some thematic unity between my universe and the universe of
0: this, yeah, this you did. podcast. Oh, I love that. Uh, yeah, I had almost a, a armored saint miniseries. I did, I had three armored I know. saint episodes. In a I know. Row. And
1: where the hell is the movie?
0: I don't know if that's a victim of, of the pandemic or, or what. I need to drop uh, Russell. Uh, was that guy's name? I need to drop him a line, actually. Yeah, I did a yeah. I did a
1: deep dive looking for it. And it's just, it's
0: I mean, the they trailer. said they were
1: taking it to festivals. Yeah. So in theory, it was, and that was in 2020. In theory, it was screenable. Yeah. Right? So yeah. it exists. It's on its feet.
0: Yeah. yeah I'm
1: dying to see it.
0: Great question. And that guy also had a, a whole other tangent where, he had made some kind. Of, I think it's Clive Barker's Nightbreed. He had made some sort of unique fan-ish edit that's like now accepted as the canonical in the world of <laughs> of Clive Barker fans. See, this is me yeah, half-ass talking about something. But no, I wanted to start actually. Is the episode of Barry that aired this week as we're talking? Yeah, had a significant uh, segment that took place at a press junket. Yes, and that is. Uh, such a specific crazy weird bizarre world and uh, uh, with and with apologies to listeners who this might be too inside baseball but i also think that's why people like podcasts uh i've that was mainly what i did for a living for a number of years you yeah. uh, when i when i uh came to southern california in 2001 i was the lead uh movie news reporter for mtv so i was press junkets and red carpets constantly, set visits. And yeah. yeah, I learned pretty quickly, you know, once you get over that initial rush of, uh, you know, of access, which is of course exciting, you know, all of a sudden you're sitting down with with heroes and, and A-listers of all stripes. But then you, you start to learn that this is, you know, for, for people listening that don't know, a press junket usually say for a film or a TV show is where, The the cast and occasionally filmmakers (laughs) are uh, sat in a nice hotel room for an entire weekend and journalists are flown in from all over the world and shuttled in and out of that room with the talent for anywhere from three to the most 10 minutes at a time uh, and to talk about their thing And, and it exists from an age, an era when you had all these local affiliates and I remember growing up in Indianapolis and, you know, seeing the local NBC guy, like I sat down with Tom Cruise this weekend. And you're like, wow, you know, you thought your local Indianapolis guy was buddies with Tom Cruise or something. No, they were yeah. one of these press junkets. And, and it really exists. It really is a uh, something that, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to crap on them because I had a lot of great experiences at them. And I'm, I'm very happy that I was, was able to do that. But I, anyway, I thought that you did an amazing job of capturing you know, for someone being thrust into that scenario for the first time, how you go into it thinking that it might be one thing and then realizing quickly what it is, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've, I've not done a huge number of them, but you know, Bill Hader certainly has, mm. um, you know, so a lot of that was drawing on, you know, my minimal and his maximal experience having done press for the movies he's done where it's, like you said, hours and hours and hours of these like five minute shots where people come in and ask the same question over and over and over and over again. Increasingly now, you know, people are coming in with a gotcha question, mm-hmm. right? That's become the new thing.
0: Oh, I, lo- right? I love the, who do you want the, to be the new Spider-Man? It was just, cause it was so, you know, and, and not to, not, not to uh, sidetrack us too much, but. It, I, I quickly learned that the best thing I could do in those situations for a while, my trick was to think of the most commonly asked question <laughs> and come in and ask it. And then when they start answering, go, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to ask you that fucking question. And <laughs> and that worked awesome for the, with a, a lot of different people. You know, I remember I was uh, interviewing Paul Walker for some uh, Richard Donner time travel movie. And I sat down and I was like, so if you could travel back anywhere in time. <laughs> where would you want to go? And he starts answering and I go, I, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to ask you that. And he literally like falls out of his chair laughing. I was like, how many times have you answered that today? He's like, dude, like 40 times. Yeah. And it kind of just shakes them out of the monotony and you can maybe get, get somewhere. But I remember Tom Cruise being a case in point, getting the opportunity to interview him. He was promoting The Last Samurai. So this was 20 years ago. He was filming Collateral, which was doing night shoots. So they had the junket at 11 o'clock at night, which was already kind of weird and disconcerting for yeah. everybody and even MTV, which was still kind of at its height of, you know, I was cutting segments for TRL and stuff like that. It still was a big deal. We we're only getting three minutes with Tom Cruise. I'm, you know, going in there and preparing with my questions and a, 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 an executive at the time, who rarely checked in on what I was doing with the movie stuff. I, I I had some fun carte blanche for a while. But it was Tom Cruise, so it was like, you know, it's a big deal. Uh, she wanted me to ask him, and this is history repeating itself, but he, <laughs> uh, his thoughts on R. Kelly's uh, Legal Troubles. Oh, God. Uh, what CDs he had in his car. And then some question about uh, who, you know who he thought was going to win, like, Video of the Year at the VMA. And if he could be any animal. Right, And I'm like, I I have three minutes at 11 o'clock at night and he's sitting in front of a The Last Samurai poster where he expects to talk about The Last Samurai for some portion of those three minutes. So yeah, so it really is yeah. a, so it was kind of a little uh, PTSD uh, for me to see that and, and to see it from the other side, because I know it from the press side. Well, that's the most
1: surreal part of it is the, you know, when I've done them, it's like there are whatever, five hotel rooms down the same hallway, mm-hmm. right? And you go to, one is like five print people sitting at a table and you sit with them for five minutes and then you go to the next room and then somebody else comes into that room and talks to them for five minutes. But it's like, you know, five or six tape recorders sitting around a table. obscure German guy asking you, you know, intrusive questions. Um, and like I said, now my sense is that there's always like, you know, like you were talking about Uh, having a two hour conversation and having a website pull, you know, the one controversial thing in it. Yeah. Make it about that. I think that's, you know, the same way that comedians are afraid of, of getting booed now because you can't make jokes about stuff. I think there is this weird, you know, like hit and run kind of, you know, journalism thing where it's like, Oh, I just need somebody to say anything controversial here. Yeah so i can yep. get clicks so there is also like it's it's gone beyond just being mind numbing and boring it's like you also have to really really
0: be on your toes because
1: people are people are coming in to grab clicks
0: and when there are so many more outlets and machines that need to be fed content you know there's only so many different ways that you can write about the same thing or report on the same thing so everyone's looking for some crazy angle that's going to be their splashy you know 10 things that we've learned from last night's Barry number eight will shock you <laughs> you know it's like it's got to be like that to uh you know cut above the noise and, and I'm, yeah. I'm still of the it's very generation x of me I'm sure but I'm, I'm, I'm still of the opinion that you just you do good work and uh it ultimately will attract yeah um, but it's
1: look it's also part of like you know there's a re- there's a reason that there's money to make things and it's because people watch them and people write about them and all that stuff so it is a you know it's a component of the process and yeah. I will say when you get somebody who really knows what they're doing that the, the difference is kind of shocking like you know the whatever journalists I'm talking to like the ones who actually know what they're doing you just go oh my god this is a this is a different experience.
0: Yeah, I've had the opportunity to speak at some uh, a couple of colleges. Not anything. I, I don't. Even, I, I, I'm talking to someone who went to Harvard. I didn't <laughs> even finish college, but I, I've been able to talk about uh, media in particular. And one thing that I always suggest is in those situations, especially like a press junket situation where you're one face of dozens that day, is to try to establish trust early in the conversation and. You know, pepper in something that shows that you're informed and that you did at least a modicum of homework, and and uh, have a question that can't just be read on Wikipedia. <laughs> you know, yeah, or yeah. or in or in someone's uh, bio, uh, and, and that tends to to put someone at ease conversationally. That's you know, it took me a long time to get there. I mean, I I started interviewing people doing uh, punk fanzines when I was like 14, and I'm sure all of my questions then were uh how did you name your band and who are your influences and how's the tour going but you know you get there did did you ever read uh the game neil strauss's book no and i'm a, a big fan of his uh and that's one of his that's a blind spot for me i've read obviously uh the dirt and i read um I'm playing out what it was what it's called, but he, he did a book that was like an anthology of a bunch of his interviews. Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um
1: yeah, I know what you're I can't remember. But yeah,
0: he's great and I've gotten but, to meet but him. But the game, of you know, is
1: all about his sort of experience in the world of pickup artists. Yes. And one of the things that he kind of ends the book with is this interview he did with Britney Spears. Yes. And, that, he I, and that I just started running the game excerpt. on her. Yeah. And he started treating the interview like he was trying to, he was using pickup techniques on her and he realized that it was an amazing way to, to establish some trust and some intimacy. And he, you know, he got a much better interview out of her because she was so guarded.
2: Yeah. He he essentially had to on her for a bit. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Get behind the wall. And she was someone locked in a, you know, before the conservatorship, she was someone locked in kind of this prison where, even having anything resembling a genuine human conversation like that was probably shocked. Yeah. I I remember uh, reading, I didn't, I never got around to reading the book, but I read an excerpt that was exactly that. It was him telling the story about that Britney Spears interview.
2: Yeah. Well Uh, that
0: it's funny that book, first of all,
1: I just found it utterly fascinating, but that that's a, you know, people have been trying to make that. I don't Dan, Dan Weiss, who, Big metalhead who uh, who co-created Game of Thrones mm-hmm. took a run at at the feature version of that, and uh, Brian Copeland and David Levine, who created Billions, also were working on it. And it just kind of never it never got there for whatever reason. But it's a, it, I love that book. It's just such a fascinating
0: read to me. Well, one of the press junkets that I did say yes to because it was over Zoom and it, and Tom Morello was part of it was for Metal Lords. The, yeah. Uh, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Netflix metal movie. Speaking of Game of Thrones. I don't know. Did you ever see the show on VH1, The Pickup Artists? Yes. I guess some yes. of those guys were characters. So yeah. Well, Mystery, in the, the
1: main guy, the main pickup artist guy, the sort of guru of all of them, was on that. And then yeah, two or three of his like disciples.
2: Yes, yeah. were
1: on that. I I thought that show was fascinating. It was absolutely fascinating. It's so interesting. And look, I I totally understand like the creep factor and like the ick factor of like teaching people to pick up. People and oh you you know
0: and where some these, other people took it who scamming, were like you know watered down versions of whatever the lineage of discipleship was there. I think there were some people who went rogue and
1: oh for just, sure. You know, no, 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 the there's, there's all kinds of like you know, incel adjacent creepiness to yeah. all of it. But there's also a part of it that I found really endearing, which is like you're taking these really awkward, shy guys that have absolutely no social dexterity you know, and you're giving them kind of tools to start conversations with people they're attracted to. And if it becomes deception, that's on you. But if it's just a, you know, a way of striking up a conversation with somebody,
0: I don't yeah. know. I mean, the fact that it was it was sort of this version of of self-help of, you know, of- Yeah, of, we're, exactly. Yeah. yeah you know, what's interesting is I met Neil Strauss, again, this was 20 something years ago. Yeah. Uh, but I met him at a show and he was, you know, he's kind of unassuming guy, but he was dressed ridiculously. and he was with this statuesque, yep. you know knockout blonde. <laughs> and a couple of years later was when the game came out, and that's when I was like, oh, when I met that guy, he was like yeah. knee deep. He was yeah. right in that book, he was living it because he was dressed yeah, he, like mystery. you know <laughs> he, he
1: did an episode of curb um when i was when i was working on Kerb, right. he yeah he he played a guy who larry thought was a skinhead and it turns yeah. out the guy had cancer
2: oh my um,
0: gosh that was um, so larry
1: service. larry confronted him and ended up you know with disastrous you know patented disastrous
0: results patented. yes our uh oh man this I, I i i can't believe i just thought of this now because we were we were emailing before we were Doing this, but yeah, and you've probably seen it. But if you there's a t-shirt out there, Larry David Head. Yeah, Larry Davidhead. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. The,
1: the motorhead logo with Larry. Yeah. David. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> Hopefully he's aware of it. I don't know if he if he would love it. I or think hate I that. showed
1: it to him once. Yeah. And I don't think he quite understood what
2: it was. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. I want to jump all the way back to part of your story is that. Uh, you know you were one of those kids that had you know Steve Martin and Bill Cosby routines memorized,
2: yeah um, yeah
0: and and those were records that were uh, crucial to you, probably overshadowing music at least early on. so yeah, if you could tell me a little bit about about that,
1: I think my dad just thought Bill Cosby was funny, so he bought a few Bill Cosby records, and those for whatever reason were the things that i I just gravitated to, and I just wore those out, yeah, there were three or four Bill Cosby records, and then I was a kid, a little kid in the seventies. The so that's right when kind of Steve Martin exploded. And so I had a couple of Steve Martin records and those Bill Cosby records. And I just listened to them over and over and over. And I don't, I don't know why I found them fascinating. I mean, you know, listening to Bill Cosby's stories of like, you know, being, <laughs> being an inner city kid in, in Philadelphia had no crossover to me being a, you know, a, a white kid in Boulder, Colorado. There was no, there was no cultural, you know, comparison, but I just was, I don't know. I was just fascinated with those. And yeah, there was a point when I was probably seven or eight where I could do two and a half hours of Bill Cosby word perfect. And I just think I learned those rhythms and you know, the ebbs and flows of, of how comedy works. And, and it's interesting. I've ended up, you know, I worked with Mike judge on Silicon Valley for years. Mm -hmm. Mike is a really, really skilled bass player yeah and he's, uh, no, he's like, a, like
0: rockabilly and stuff too right he yeah plays a, bass. he
1: plays a, a stand-up bass um and he was you know he, he toured for years with Doyle Bramhall and a couple other people and you know I've never actually seen him play but you know everyone that has says he's he's incredible and the way he writes and directs is very it's very musical like he has a great ear hmm. he's about the best at casting I've ever worked with just Because he hears things a certain way, and it's like, oh, that's how it should sound, or you know. And actually, I I wasn't around for the pilot of Silicon Valley. I came on after the pilot was shot, and we we reshot a bunch, and then started shooting the rest of the the series. But the way Mike cast Silicon Valley was almost everyone in the principal cast read for the part of Ehrlich.
0: Mm, Um, Interesting, which I guess is kind of the most broad. Yeah, I think it was like the most the most fleshed
1: out character. And then I think Mike just said. I'm not sure who that character is, but I like that guy. You know, I like Martin Starr. I like Kumail. And he just kind of found these guys and built this group before he really knew what any of the characters really were. Wow. Uh, And then just kind of backed into the characters from the cast. But he just cast people that, you know, and if you think about that ensemble, it is like, you know there's a <laughs> there's a rhythm guitar and lead guitar and bass wow. and drums yeah. you know what i mean like yeah. they feel like they don't occupy the same space at all and working with bill hader you know bill as you know is an incredible impressionist and he's a pretty good musician as well and so much of writing with him is rhythm and
0: uh, i didn't you know, know he was a musician that, yeah, i guess that bass. explains him and fred Armisen's. yeah oh yeah is is it bill hader playing bass on the punk rock wedding Sketch. yeah 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 yeah. Okay. He, he, well, and he yeah they did a couple things it. On,
1: <laughs> on uh there's a, a two-part uh documentary now thing that's kind of a, a satire of the eagles documentary um oh. and he he plays on that mm-hmm. as well writing with mike and with bill is a lot of instead of saying okay it should be it should be this you go How about this? How about this? How about this? And, you know, I always use the analogy of it's like people standing at a piano playing different notes going, no, it should be a little higher, a little lower. There it is. And a lot of times you just don't know it until you hear it.
0: And and also I would imagine scripting is structure and a song is structure, right? You can have great riffs and a cool melody and whatever, but it's all going to make sense in some sort of
1: for sure. Architecture.
0: Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. And sometimes you have
1: sort of a theme for something and you kind of kind of grows out of that. And sometimes you have a hook. Right. Or you go, oh, you yeah. know, it will be amazing is a scene where this happens. How do we get to that?
0: Mm. I've seen interviews with you and, and listen to interviews with Bill as well, that the the themes for Barry tend to reveal themselves once you've started as opposed, right? As opposed to like, oh, this season's going to be about this. Yeah. And and again, that is a very,
1: a weirdly musical process, right? It's like songwriting. Yeah. It's sort of like you follow it where it wants to go and you go, okay, well, what, what would this character want here? What would this character do? And if this character chooses to do that, how would that character react? Mm. And if that character reacted that way, then how would the first character counter react to that? You know, and you, it's, it's a lot of just following the logic and the emotion of the story. And then I'm a sort of believer that, you know, theme, whatever that is, sort of comes out of the, the rewrite where mm-hmm. you kind of follow it where it goes. And then you go, OK, this feels like what would happen now. How do we make this cleaner or tighter or, you know, this is the sort of obvious way that this could go. What's the inspired version of this scene? And then you start to notice patterns. And you start to go, oh, wait, he's dealing with trying to be forgiven and she's dealing with trying to be forgiven. You know, and we're kind of a little muddy about what's going on in this story. What if there's a forgiveness angle to that? And then you go, oh, wow, it's there. We just didn't see it. And you start to kind of dial that stuff in.
0: And there's got to be something musical as well, you know, running with your analogy about uh, writing in the half hour format, which has to be its own skill, especially in the golden age of TV, right? Where we have Mad Men and Breaking Bad and everything, all these hour long dramas and, and you've, your career has been largely spent truncating into 30 minutes. It, yeah, it's,
1: well it's, I mean, I, I have never felt like a half hour wasn't enough, you know, in anything ever. Like, and and almost without exception, weirdly, like when you're cutting stuff down, sometimes you feel like you're cutting bone. Mm. You know, you're like, well, we've got it to 36 minutes. We want to try and chop six and a half or seven minutes out of this. There's no way to do it. And then you figure out ways to get, you know, three or four more minutes out of it. And that version, for whatever reason, it's painful at the time, but it's almost always like when you look back at it, it's the best version. Mm. You know, I can probably count on one hand the number of episodes I've worked on where they aired and I went, ah, we cut too much.
2: You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, I just, do, I
0: do. It's a yeah. weird
1: thing of like, you know, it really forces you to be efficient and clean and tell a story as simply as possible. And, you know, Bill Hader and I always joke about, we always get into trouble because we write these scenes where it, the scene is about five different things, you know? And it's like, oh, they talk about this and then they transition to this. And then he wants to talk about this, but she wants to do this. And then they talk, and then it's, and it's like, this, these scenes are a mess. And so, you know, we always try and focus on like, okay, what is, what's this scene about? Mm. She wants to do this and he wants that. Mm. That's what it's about. Just write that.
0: And I would imagine you got a lot of that on the job training with Curb because Curb, as I understand it, that, that writing process is like, we, we we know what the scene needs to accomplish and we got to get from A to B and then the actors can play with yeah. how they do that.
1: Really, I the discipline came from Seinfeld. That's where Mm -hmm. I learned to write. You know, I was on the last four seasons of that show. So just under a hundred, slightly more than half the episodes and that show, you know, most sitcoms are, Oh, there's an A story. And then there's a smaller B story Mm -hmm. and a couple of what they call C stories. Seinfeld was always, what's the Jerry story? What's the Elaine story? What's the Kramer story. And what's the George story. So you would always start with four stories, not one, two or three. And then the work of it was in the outlining was, you know, finding beats of, the, of each story, but also weaving them together, you know, and there was always yeah. a joy to, oh, well, what if the guy that Elaine is dating is the same guy that George is fighting with in his story, right, and you go, oh, wow, we just combined it, and now you go, oh, well, when George does that, now Elaine would be upset, do you know what I mean? So you're finding yeah. emotion and, and conflict between our, and you're getting our
0: characters at each other, what an evolution and that show was from, you know, the, Three's well, company where it's like the misunderstanding gets, yeah, yeah, out yeah, at the end or whatever. Yeah, but but yeah.
1: the the efficiency came in, you're trying to tell four stories, and that was ad supported network TV. So we had a really rigid runtime.
0: Yeah, 22 um, minutes or something,
1: right? I think it was 21 and a half. Maybe it was 22 and a half. I think they gave us more. I think at one point they wanted to cut it to 21 and a half and Jerry fought for the extra minute. And I wow. think they took a minute out of whatever the show after Seinfeld was so that the nine o'clock show on Thursday had 22 and a half minutes and <laughs> the nine thirty show had 20 and a half.
0: Yeah. Um, if you're lucky enough to have that lead in, you can sacrifice. Sure. <laughs> but, it's, but it's how
1: Same. I, that's how I learned to write is, you know, you would write this this thing as efficiently as you could and then you'd shoot it and it would, you'd cut it together and the editor's rough cut of it. Like basically the, the first go of it was 28 minutes, you know, or 29 minutes. And it's like, now we have to cut, you know, a quarter of the show. And you, there's a reason that if you look at Seinfeld, when you say like, Oh, what, what was funny in that episode? It's always, almost always like what happened. It's always the story that's funny.
2: Mm-hmm. right
1: the big laughs are when george did that or when kramer went to that thing and that's because there was no room for jokes you know you couldn't just do free stand they just get cut last few seasons jerry didn't even do stand-up right like the right the, yeah because there's no time yeah we didn't have the the 40 seconds for jerry to do stand-up in the run timing. Because we had some story.
0: It's it's fascinating because as as we're talking about this, you know, a, a second ago, I'm saying, like, oh, Seinfeld was such an evolutionary leap from you know the days of like three's company. And yet what you just described is also quintessentially a situational comedy. Because you're saying one of the things we remember that's beloved about the show were the situations on yeah, the show, yeah. not the not the you know, one-liners or visual gags or whatever. Um, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. And and I would say the other thing. And again, this is really where, you know, and this was all like, you know, Jerry and Larry David, you know, kind of innovating. But the the morality of the Seinfeld universe, every, almost every sitcom at that point was basically a morality play, right? Mm-hmm. Where a character's faced with a, with a decision. Do they do the, the easy thing or the right thing? And they do the easy thing and then bad things happen. And at the end, they apologize to whoever they wronged. And as, right, well, hugs and learning, right? Hugs and and learning. this whole thing was no hugs, no learning. (laughs) And it's really, you know, it's it's a lot of, I think Larry's and Curb is exactly the same thing. Yeah. Right, where it's a character behaves poorly or selfishly. They get caught, they lie, (laughs) which gets them in worse trouble. And now they have to try and screw somebody else over to get out of trouble. And they do that and they get caught and they lie again and in the end everything blows up <laughs> and, um, and, and they learn nothing and it's, it's and exaggerated for comedic thing.
0: effect but at the same time it's so relatable in that it's become kind of a cultural shorthand for to hear someone say oh i'm so larry david or i had a larry david moment or yeah. the situation was so larry david and again yeah, like you right. said it's, it's situations not jokes yeah no
1: and that's i mean look relating it to music again like you know it's always incredible to me when a musician is such a, has such a voice Mm. that, you know, you can listen to Bonham or, you know, Stuart Copeland, you know, ISOed and you know that that's Bonham or Stuart Copeland just by the way they're playing, which is, I mean, you think about how many people play drums and the fact that you can listen to somebody and you know, their voice by, they're hitting something with sticks you know is is unbelievable you know it's incredible to accomplish that you know and to be to get to that point where people refer to you know a style of storytelling as you know Larry Mm David-esque is just a you know I think it's a it's a real testament to just what a you know I hate to use the word genius I was gonna
0: say you can say genius he would
1: he would well the the joke I always use is I I don't want to use the term genius but I'm a genius and I think Larry's pretty great um he uh that's Jeff Schaefer's joke by the way I have to give credit credit where credit is due um but no he truly is I mean you know I, I if if ever I worked with a creative genius that's the guy
0: And, 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 you know, Stuart Copeland does probably my favorite thing in art, and I would say Seinfeld did this, I would say Mike Judge has done this, Uh, Barry does this, is when you can make something that's inherently complex, like the sort of deceptive simplicity, you know, like, you listen to the police, and it's like, oh, it's a pop song. And, you know, most casual listeners, even probably, if they're trying to think about the drums in a police song, it just... Sounds like you know regular four four whatever drum, and then but and yet there's a layer just beneath where it's like, oh, that guy's doing really complicated shit. Oh, and making yeah, it yeah, sound yeah. simple. And it's that's one.
1: I mean, it's it's like what I mean. That's really Soundgarden's genius, right? Is like I don't think they I don't think there's a Soundgarden song that's all four four, right? They're in weird time signatures all the time, but you can still you know nod your head to it.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah. They just
1: figured out a way to make you know, really
0: tricky stuff, very accessible. And you, you can watch a Seinfeld episode without thinking about the mechanics of like, oh, they're, they're telling, you know, four A stories and, and they yeah. have to intersect at some point. And
1: Yeah, but that like I said, like, like when we were writing that show, the, the connections between stories, when you found a good connection between them when you were writing, that was always like, that was a big high. right that was like more so i think than finding like a great comedic beat or a great turn or you know sometimes you would go oh my god instead of doing that he does this oh that's hilarious you know and you'd be very happy but it was always what if that's the same woman that does that and now they you know those were always the big
0: joyous moments you know something your analogy to music makes me think about also uh you were talking about the casting for silicon and how it was uh like a band that also makes me think about how musicians have really specific styles. And so you can take even this you know, you can take Chris Cornell out of Soundgarden and put him in an audio slave. He still sounds like Chris Cornell, Yeah, which isn't to say that he can't do different genres and so on, but he has a, a, a unique, a literal and figurative voice. And when I think about the cast of Silicon Valley, there's something about comedic actors as opposed to traditional dramatic actors where they have, and a lot of dramatic actors have it too, But of course, but they have personas. So they're, they're playing, right? It's like they're playing different yeah. characters, of course, and there's diversity and nuance there, but you know, certainly Martin Starr in Party Down and Silicon Valley and Spider-Man movies, there's a, there's a Martin Starrism to all three of those characters, even though they're wildly different characters on paper. Yeah, um, yeah which is why you know his name. Yeah, exactly. Because he has a a thing. And then,
1: you know, I've also worked with guys like Steven Root, who is one of the most versatile actors on earth. And weirdly, I feel like he doesn't get anywhere near the credit or acclaim he deserves. Because he disappears. I was gonna
0: say that's so exact word I was gonna use. Is because he disappears, and and yeah, and I, I I'm one of those nerds that has glee in telling somebody like, uh, yeah, you know, Fugues on Barry, that's the Stapler guy from Office Space. What? Yeah. No, it is. Right, isn't. but that's the thing. You know? Nobody yeah. knows that because how yeah. could that be the same guy?
2: <laughs> right. You
1: know, and actually, it's funny when we when we wrote and shot the Barry pilot, the Fugues character was really different in the first iteration of the pilot. He was a very dark, kind of brooding, mean, sadistic boss. And credit to HBO, their one big note after we handed in the pilot was, we know what an acting teacher is. We know what a fledgling actor is. We know what a hitman is. We know what a gangster is. We don't know what a hitman's agent is. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, what is that? And we're just not... (laughs) There's something about it that's clunky and we don't know if it's real or not. And we started really staring at it hard. And we realized that a people didn't quite know, you know, that character didn't quite feel of the world and, and B we realized we had left ourselves nowhere to go. Like there was no evolution of that relationship, Mm. you know, because it was like, he's saying you're going to fucking do this. And Barry's going, I don't want to. And like, yeah. that's where, like, where do you go from there? It's always just going to be this contentious, angry thing. And so we completely kind of reiterated the character of Fuchs and we made him, you know, his dad's old military buddy who, you know, had used the the carrot, not the stick to, mm-hmm. to get him to do this stuff and was clearly, you know, trading on this guy's, you know, willingness to please we could totally changed the character and we called Steven and we said, you know, good news is you're still in the show. Bad news is you're playing an utterly and completely different character.
0: So you, you mentioned the Barry pilot and I believe it was the pilot, but you know, when we're getting introduced, it was in the first or second episode, because we're getting introduced to Barry and there was a Metallica poster. On yeah. That's wall. the pilot. Yeah. And uh, of course this being Speaking Destroyer, the Metallica podcast mm-hmm. uh, that, Uh, immediately intrigued me well done by the way well done to bring it around thank you very much and uh, this man
1: is a professional
0: and 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 you know and there's certain there's moments where that sort of stuff crosses i guess heavy music culture or whatever you want to you want to call it crosses in you know whether it's the office when the first time we go to Shroot Farms, Dwight's listening to Life of Agony in his Trans Am. Or of course, most famously, I think The Sopranos where AJ goes through his new metal phase. And David <laughs> Chase has since said that he thinks that's the one part of the show that didn't that's, that isn't evergreen. I was seeing, it was this interview where somebody was talking to him about how during the pandemic we're all watching The Sopranos again. Yeah. And uh, the, the interviewer was like, it all holds up. And he was like, well, everything except AJ's musical taste. <laughs> that's kind of funny you know as a fan of bill haters and being familiar with your work it also immediately struck me like there's there's not gonna be anything about barry's living space the set design that's accidental or that somebody just like hey let's throw this up this looks cool which i think is often the case when like a metal poster ends up in a show or something so i gotta ask yeah what uh what did barry's environment tell us about his character it-
1: It was, you know what, it was less, to be honest, it was less the Metallica specificity, and it was more that Barry is kind of emotionally stunted. And so we Mm. thought him living alone in a small apartment and having a, like a poster tacked on the wall as art just felt very, uh, it felt very like college boy, college dorm room. Like that was the, that was what we were going for. It's just that this is not a guy who is as mature as his years. And he's kind of stunted and he's a little naive and he's not, you know, he hasn't grown into the world appropriately. And so the Metallica poster just felt like, you know, I think we gave the art director and the the set decorator, just the note of, you know, make it, make it feel like he's a, a college kid
0: and I, and i liked that the choice that it was a heavy band i think uh, you know either by intent or or happy accident yeah it speaks to you know that pent up aggression and that catharsis of that kind of music really speaks to that you know we put cowboys from hell in yeah an episode that that was very, <laughs> yeah, was very aggressive
1: yeah aggressive episode 7 i think and that was the whole idea was just that these guys are you know, we talked to a ton of Marines and, and they did really talk about how when they would get into firefights, like there was so much adrenaline going on that they would come back to, you know, whatever base they were on. And just like you either had to get into a fight or you had to lift weights like crazy or you had to like, you know, have sex or something like there just is this massive amount of adrenaline that's that's pent up after that stuff.
0: And a lot of those guys uh, are overseas in combat are listening to this style of music.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's, again, it's just an outlet. I'm also a big believer that a lot of kind of fundamentalist religious society doesn't give people that outlet. And that's why they get so violent. You know, I think it's hand in hand. You know, like if you don't have an outlet for you know, all of that testosterone and all of that
0: rage, it comes out. Absolutely. And and me, you know, growing up late 70s to early 90s, you know, I lived through satanic panic and the PMRC and, <laughs> and all that yep. stuff. And, and I, at a very young age, was cognizant of the fact that, like, no, the, these movies and music and aren't going to make me kill someone. They're stopping me from killing someone. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this is yeah, like, of course, th- this is doing the reverse of what you think it's doing. This is giving an outlet for all of this, yeah, but... Yeah, but that's every every pit at every concert
1: I've ever been to. People are like, "Oh my God, it's encouraging violence!" And it's like, in an hour, when White Zombie gets off stage, these guys are not <laughs> going to be able to fight. They're going to be too tired. They're going to be exhausted. They're going to go home and go to sleep.
0: Yeah, they had a dojo to go work out in, and <laughs> they're <laughs> and now they're now they're good. Yeah, uh, yeah, because you know certainly a Bob Marley poster or a Sublime poster could have could have accomplished that suspended adolescence college kid vibe. But, uh, but you're but right. A, it is that Metallica it's... or a Pantera or a Slayer. That's yeah. like, that's Barry. And, you know, it's all for
1: sure. No, that's, it's that energy and that.
0: Yeah. So uh we got to talk about Armored Saint. We got to talk about your, your formative, your own, your own, your metal years as it yeah. were. Yeah.
1: I, uh, so I lived it. in, I lived in Boulder till I was 10 um, and then we moved to Pasadena in 1980, right when the sort of current, or I guess past, wave of of metal started. So just by luck of, of geography, you know, we would go. I I had a couple friends who were. I was in a, a band starting in sixth grade. So wow, 16, that's early too, like, sixth ninth, grade. And the bass player in my band, this guy, Dave Melby, was like, he had older siblings. And so he had access to kind of whatever the cool next thing was. Yeah. And in 1982, he said, hey, and he lived in South Pasadena, which is where Armored Saint is from. So he said, hey, there's this band, this these local guys from South Pasadena High School that are in this band called Armored Saint. And they're playing at this place called the Ice House. And so this was 82, I think, maybe early 83. So we go to this, what was like a comedy club in Pasadena. Armored Saint was in this battle of the bands with like two like super proggy, like, you know, guys in like white satin scarves. And yeah. you know, they were dressed like, you know, like the, the unfortunate rush years. Um, <laughs> and I saw Armored Saint. It was like one of the first live music experiences I ever had. And then there was a place called Perkins Palace. It was like an old movie house. It, when I was 13, 14 years old, I saw Armored Saint a few times there. I saw Wasp. I saw Rat. I saw Alcatraz with Yngwie. Wow. Um, just a bunch of you know bands that would become massive before they were massive.
0: There's got to be, uh, and maybe it already exists, but there's got to be a documentary or something to be made about the phenomenon of old movie houses that in the 80s became venues because uh, growing up in Indianapolis we had two of them yeah uh, the Arlington Theater and then later the Emerson Theater that were both yeah. you know, I think the Emerson's been there since like the 30s yeah well, they just
1: you know they just redid the Orpheum
0: that's downtown. right I just
1: saw I went to see uh Bruce Dickinson's uh you spoken went to the word. spoken word thing yeah. oh wow yeah and it was awesome he was great oh Snowfall. wow um, but that was at the Orpheum and I hadn't been in the Orpheum weirdly enough to connect music and TV again mm-hmm. we shot an episode of Seinfeld in the Orpheum there's an episode where there's a an act that's like the Karamazov the Brothers Karamazov um, the flying Karamazov brothers whatever that act I don't know if you remember those guys they were like juggler guys yeah. so there was an act that was like them and and they borrow uh, a jacket from somebody and it doesn't get returned or so I can't even remember what the story was but that episode was shot at the Orpheum when it was full of rats and I remember being in there and I don't think I remembered that we shot in the Orpheum until I went to see Bruce Dickinson and I was in there and I was like this place is incredible and I'm like wait a minute this is the room this is wow. the theater we shot Seinfeld in but I guess you know they're they're finding these benefactors who are paying for restorations of these classical movie houses and they're just
0: the Orpheum's just gorgeous. Fox Theater in Pomoda. that's one that was, you know, bought and yeah. restored and all yeah. that. And I think yeah. the
1: Rialto in Pasadena is now an Apple store? I think that I think that's yeah. what happened to that one. I think it had turned it into retail space.
0: Yeah, I was supposed to go to the Orpheum just this week actually that I had, I had tickets to one of those uh, Aziz shows and then the show got postponed. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I was I can't remember the last time but, I've, I've been there. I've been inside. But. No,
1: you're right. I think the idea of there's a, a there's a Japanese photographer named Hiroshi Sugimoto who does who's done this series of photos of classic old movie houses, and he does one really long exposure when a, a movie is screening, mm-hmm. so the screen burns out white, and the rest of the theater is lit by the uh. movie. Oh yeah! And so there's this series of these these gorgeous old movie houses. Oh, I gotta look at those.
0: I gotta look at yeah. Those.
1: They're really cool.
0: Company here in, in California, uh, Cinespia, I think it's pronounced. They put on a lot of really cool. They do the screenings at Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Okay, yeah, sure. But yeah. Um, and that's during the summer. And then uh, during the winter and fall, they they do uh, a lot of the old theaters downtown. I went, but I went to well, one. They did it for The Shining, and it was oh yeah, just incredible. It's, it's and, pretty yeah. awesome when you go down
1: there. Like you look at when you're on Broadway, you know there's the Orpheum, and there's like five or six of these other. Under- yeah, all in a row, like a little. And they're, little they're little. all, I think, still there. You know, in yeah. some state of disrepair.
0: That's a, a gift that we have. That for sure. So, wh- what did you play in your band? I was a drummer. Awesome. Um, I should have I should have known yeah. from the, the bottom My, in Copeland. David David Melby
1: was the bass player, and uh, a guy named Sean Bailey was our. Singer and guitar player. He is now the the president of production at Disney. Um, <laughs>
0: you know what? People who start out doing something cool tend to end up doing something cool. I've I've noticed that in my life. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's pretty rad. What 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 were uh, what kind of band was it? What sort of stuff? Uh, were you guys oh, it was
1: it was I can I'll tell you when we played um, when we were in eighth grade we played False Alarm, the Armed Saint song. We played 22 Acacia Avenue.
0: Amazing. Speaking of Dickinson,
1: uh, Mean Streak, YT. Those were our three uh, go tos.
0: So you're no joke, in other words.
1: (laughs) Uh, I don't know. Again, I can't. I'm not qualified to render a judgment on that.
0: You are are qualified. So uh, where did Metallica enter into your equation? John Bush, of Uh, course, famously asked on me.
1: I can tell you vividly the first time I heard for whom the bell tolls on K I just remember that guitar sound. So the first record that I ever, and I'm, I forgive me if this is boring to everybody, but the first record that I ever like contemporary for the time record that I ever had was the first Boston album.
0: Oh, wow. That's right.
1: And I don't know why I think it was just some kid in my school was talking about it. And I made my parents buy me that record.
0: Someone's buying that record right now. Like that's uh, definitely so. a, a catalog it's a, it's a piece. Phenom- yeah. I mean,
1: it, it was a. I mean, it was literally a life-changing record for me. And that guitar tone that Tom Scholz gets on that record is still just that sound. Uh, there's. I, it's like my favorite sound on earth. And I don't know why, but I've always just been a junkie for that
0: distorted kind of power crunch. That's your um, that's your inside the actor's studio. Uh, what's your favorite sound? Yeah, <laughs> like that's it. Guitar tone on the first boss. Yeah, star. that's it. Just like
1: a <laughs> distorted, ballsy power chord. So when I heard "For Whom the Bell Tolls," I just remember, you know, I had it. I was probably doing homework or something, and I just remember hearing that, going, "What is that?" And I had a couple of friends who were into Venom. And Slayer at the time. And I always felt like those were just a little, like I just wasn't there yet. Yeah. Like those were just slightly too heavy. And then I remember hearing from the bell tolls, which was like the heaviest song that I ever liked at up to that point. And I just remember thinking that. And I I went out and bought that album immediately. And it was just on all the time. And then when Master Puppets came out, it was like I just went that much deeper. It just was that is a to me a perfect record.
0: Agreed. A perfect record. And I, and I would say that the title track is a perfect song. That's that. said it on the podcast a lot, but that's the, you know, if Aliens came down and asked, what is Metallica? That's yeah. the song because it, yeah. it has everything. And, I,
1: and then I remember I was in college when Justice came out and I had two or three friends who were giant Metallica fans also. And I remember vividly being in this guy's dorm room. And he bought the CD and it was like the first, like the second or third year of CDs.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah.
1: And the very first CD I ever heard, by the way, was uh, Holy Diver. My friend, Sean Bailey, was like the first guy I knew who had a CD player. And I remember we put it on and he pressed play. And I remember him playing with the volume knob going, I don't know if it's playing because back then, as you remember, (laughs) when you put a record on to to know that it was playing, you would, Futs the volume and you would hear the hiss go up and down Uh, there's no hiss hiss. i don't know if it's and then it started (laughs) but i remember when justice came out i remember sitting in this guy's dorm room it was my sophomore year and we put it on and the beginning of black and comes on all that kind of high stuff Mm -hmm. and i just remember we were all sitting here and when the song started one of the guys was a bass player and Mm -hmm. i remember him going there's no bass one song in and he's like there's no." There's no bass. I go, what do you mean there's no bass? Of course there's bass. He goes, listen to the record. There's no bass. And the whole way through the record, all he would say is, there's no bass. (laughs) There's no bass.
0: It's, uh, you know, there's been many theories and and stories floated out over the years. One of them comes down to the mechanics of it, that it's because of the frequencies and everything, the guitars and everything's so scooped, there's nowhere for the bass to go and of yeah. course there's the famous you know that it was the ultimate Jason Newstead hazing was to yeah. uh yeah. send him off to track his bass with the engineer for a couple of days by himself and then keep turning it down uh and I know uh people involved in the production blame Lars I know that they were flying back and forth on tour when they were mixing that record so their ears were fried and you know there's a lot of reasons given over the years but I I gotta give all the credit in the world to jason newstead because when you see him asked about it he says you know this is the way people heard the record this is the way people loved it this is the way it sold millions of copies you know i appreciate that people go on youtube and make and justice for jason and you know suddenly yeah. it sounds like flea is playing bass in metallica because it's like over over overdone bass but uh, he's like but it's the record is what it is you know yeah that, that's, and part, weirdly- that's part of its
1: story it has such a specific sound, you know, yes. like whenever I'm on, you know, if I'm shuffling and I hear anything on that record, you just know immediately that it's from that record. It's so cold and angry
0: and the drums are so clicky and, uh, yeah. and it's very uh, sort of distant. And I think, I think Robert Trujillo has talked about, if I'm
1: not mistaken, that when he had to learn those songs, when he joined the band He just had to sort of assume what the bass part was because Mm -hmm. he couldn't learn it
0: from the record because it's not on there. Yeah, and Jason Newsett's an incredible bass player, which is a real, you know, and and the funny thing about the album opening with Blacken is that's one of his (laughs) co-writes. That's his riff. Yeah. (laughs) But you don't hear him playing it. (laughs) Yeah, I remember when they, you know, Metallica started doing these uh, anniversary box sets where they've been doing remakes and remasters and it's kitchen sink, like, you know, So much stuff packed in each one of those. And I remember in the run-up to the Justice box, there was some rumbling that, you know, maybe they're going to, this will be when they remix. I was like, nope, (laughs) it's remastered. It's the same mix. I I agree with that that sentiment that it's like, it sounds the way it sounds. Weirdly enough, when I got into Metallica, Garage Days was the current release. So that was the first Metallica record that I got. Cliff had passed just a few months before I discovered the band. So, you know, Newstead was my Metallica bass player. I think yeah, same with a lot of people. Yeah. You know. That,
1: that was my, I probably listened to garage days in college more than any other record. And I, I was goofing around. I was playing drums a bit in college in the basement of a dorm with one of the guys I listened to justice with. It was a really good guitar player. Uh, and we used to play helpless. Oh,
0: rad. Yeah. yeah and, that, and, the, and Metallica, of course, like a lot of people was my entry point to, Misfits, Danzig, and Samhain, which is you know almost almost of equal importance to me. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: Weirdly, it's funny. I got to those bands because the other big sort. There were a few metal guys in my high school, but most of my high school was kind of new. Like K Rock was in Pasadena. The studio was in Pasadena, so. Pasadena sort of took ownership of, you know, whatever new wave, whatever you want to call it. Um, so most of the kids in my high school were into Oingo Boingo and U2 and, and like the edgiest ones of those kids kind of worked their way back around to kind of punkier stuff, and you know, Dead Kennedys and Black Flag. Um, so there was that weird horseshoe effect of like, I was finding them from one end of the spectrum and they yes. were from the other, and they were, they were very close to each other.
0: Yeah. That's funny. That's a good way to put it. The horseshoe thing too. And, you know, it reminds me, when we were talking about Mike judge earlier. There's a uh, more late eighties, early nineties, but a, a fairly, at least in subcultural terms, a fairly iconic hardcore singer named Mike judge from the band judge. You know, when this when, I don't know. I've never heard this. So when Beavis and Butthead came on, there was a rumor kind of in the hardcore scene that it was Mike Judge. Oh, it band was that Judge,
2: Mike Judge? had uh,
0: <laughs> had created it. And so yeah, I I met Mike Judge once at Comic-Con one year. He uh he was coming into the room, someone else was doing the interview, and he did the interview and then he was coming out. And I said hi to him as he was coming out. And I mentioned I was like, Have you ever heard of the Mike Judge, the singer of the band Judge? And and he was like, he was like, no, no. And I was kind of telling him about that. And that's when he told me, he's like, I am a musician though. I actually, he's like, I play stand-up bass and rockabilly bands. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Oh, that's really uh, funny. Yeah. No, I, I've never heard of
1: the other Mike Judge. I'll have to, I'll have to
0: send you some stuff on the other. Oh Mike yeah, Judge. for sure. I want to be uh, respectful of your time. I know I've already kept oh. you over an hour. No worries. I, I, I wish I had better things to do. I, you, you said one of my favorite things. And this 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 goes back to the uh, complex yet appears to be simple. Uh, I read an interview where someone asked you, you know, it was uh, uh, you know one of those questions about making it or meeting people or or breaking into doing things you want to do, and and your biggest piece of advice was don't be an asshole. Yeah, and it's so that that's been the thing that I have learned over and over again, and for the the errors of my life when I would see you know peers or contemporaries get ahead you know air quotes or be bitter or jealous or upset about something not going your way like you know you know talk to me on a different day when I'm more cynical I guess but I'm (laughs) largely of the opinion that like those people don't win like those things don't ultimately triumph no I think it's
1: you know those look at you know and I, I think you know in the era of me too you know you see like people that behave badly yeah win in the short term Mm. and in the end it just you run out of you know there's a a longer and longer line of people waiting to kick you you know and when you're vulnerable you get kicked
0: yeah true Um, enough yeah and and it it seems like you know in in inter-band relationships you know when you think about metallica Kirk Hammett, Jason Newstead, Rob Trujillo, Cliff Burton, you know, Lars being this very social, gregarious, uh, you know, constantly hip to new bands and all of that. They're friendly, they're accessible, they're approachable, you know, that whole style of music, whether it's punk and hardcore or thrash metal, you know, it really eliminated that barrier between the audience and the band. And it was much more like, we could be them, they could be us, we're exchanging energy back and forth. And I I think that in a a broader sense, it plays into your don't be an asshole.
1: (laughs) Yeah, maybe. I don't know. know. I mean, I certainly feel that, you know, like I've never had any personal dealings with anybody in, in Anthrax, but every time I've ever seen Scott Ian interviewed, yeah, he just seems like a, you know, and he'll talk about it like I remember seeing some interview with him where they were talking about like you know, getting girls and going to strip clubs. And he goes, What? No, we were we were anthrax. Yeah. What?
0: We were reading that- Judge Dredd. Yeah.
1: because <laughs> yeah. No, we weren't doing that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I uh, saw
1: I saw the closest I've come to meeting Scotty and I saw him getting onto it he was on a plane I was on and he was carrying like he had a baby and a in a thing and it was like i decided it was like the most metal version of scotty and i could see was this guy like carrying a baby and getting on a plane with a bottle and a you know yeah. bag over his shoulder
0: yeah. i love it yeah and you know he's uh that baby is a meatloaf's grandchild yes yeah <laughs> just amazing i know yeah. I, so yeah i love that the horseshoe that you described because i think that that's true for a lot of us of a certain era because yeah, the first music I ever loved was, was punk and new wave, very little. I had an older brother and growing up in, on the South side of Indianapolis, that was, there weren't many of us. Yeah. <laughs> like that was yeah. not the predominant culture. Uh, and yeah, and that's the stuff that has proven to stand the test of time. And, to, and, to, you know, we're still talking about it. Just yeah. Like, just oh, for sure. About-
1: no, I mean, you know, it's, there's a reason that the first decline of Western civilization was, punk and the second one was metal like they're cousins they're they're cousins for (laughs) sure for sure that's why we all
0: love motorhead (laughs) yeah (laughs) right it's all of it right and then
1: you know and one of the other bands I got super lucky to see when I was I think a junior in high school was Jane's Addiction and they were like third on a bill at the country club in Reseda I went to see Fishbone um, amazing which is still to this day the greatest live band I've ever seen on earth incredible Um, just one of the, just mind blowing, but it, so was fishbone and then a band called little Kings. And then the third bill was this band. No one had ever heard of called Jane's addiction. And it was one of those moments where, you know, they always talk about like when the doors came on stage at the whiskey, like all the cocktail waitresses would just stop working and turn around and watch them. And Perry Farrell got on stage and every single person in the club just went, who the hell is that? What is happening? And it was, people were looking around like, are you seeing what I'm seeing? And it was just, it was, I remember, I mean, just thinking about it, like the hair on my arms standing up, like yeah. it was one of those moments where you just go, I don't know what this is. I'm not even sure if I like it,
0: but <laughs> it's unbelievable. That, and that's an era of shows where the bill, and obviously this grew into Lollapalooza with, you know, famously Jane's Addiction's last tour. Uh, that was when the bill for shows was just like it's just alternative and that could be anything from fishbone to jane's addiction to voivod you know where it's like yeah yeah yeah. you just see these bands playing together it got super mushy i mean it was
1: interesting like like i said when i was in junior high and high school like they did not mix like there were metal people and there were new wave people and then weirdly you know, as we got further away from each other, like I said, we all came back around because the you know the people who went further into new wave found punk and yeah you know and the people who went further into metal found Slayer and Venom and then punk
0: right? yeah and Metallica was, was such a a gateway there too because you know they're they're coming out as a reaction to the hair metal thing which was all about limousines and strippers and yeah. Uh, you know this extravagance and and silliness and love songs and whatever and then uh, you know it's uh, for a punk kid to see Metallica they would go wait these guys are skateboarding and they're dressed yeah. pretty much like I am except they have long hair and they're wearing yeah. punk t-shirts and you know are,
1: well you when know.
0: Anthrax started hanging
1: around with Public Enemy yep. right I remember I mean and, you know I guess Aerosmith and Run DMC was kind of the same thing but like when those started mashing up like Yeah. Like there just wasn't the same, like it was like your identity, like in junior high or high school, it's like, I am this and you are that. And I hate what you are and you hate what I am.
0: You know, that was my entry point to hip hop was uh, prior to anthrax and and public enemy actually doing the song together. Scott Ian would wear the public enemy shirt and I'd see him wearing it in magazines. And there was a kid who rode my bus uh, to, (laughs) to uh, junior high who would wear public enemy shirts. And uh, one day I just asked him, I'm like, what is that? I just thought it was a metal band. Yeah. It's a shirt, you know, and um, he, I made him a tape of, I don't remember what probably Megadeth or something. And he made me a tape of public enemy and, <laughs> like an exchange product. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I got home and turned it on. And the first song I heard was she watched channel zero where they're sampling Slayer, they're rapping over Slayer. And I was yeah. like, oh, I guess I like rap. <laughs> like yeah. who, who would have thought?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that was another thing I got that this guy, David Melby, who was the bass player in my band who, you know, found Armored Saint. He was the first guy that ever played Run DMC for me. Amazing. You know, he just was like somewhat, I guess, prescient or like, you know, like I said, he had older siblings who were like, oh, here, this is the new shit. But uh, yeah, I remember that. And then I remember finding the L, LL Cool J's first record, Radio, and listening to that nonstop.
0: God, God bless Def Jam in that era. Once, yeah, you know, LL Cool J, Run DMC, and Slayer <laughs> are on the same record label. Yeah, first yeah. Danzig album, and yeah, incredible. Yeah, I, I was, I was in a uh, best movie soundtracks roundtable the other day, and my. Uh, m- you know, obviously there's a lot of worthy entries, but my number one that I advocated for, which isn't on streaming for some reason, was the Less Than Zero soundtrack. Yeah, I had that. And that was yeah, that was going back to Cali, Hazy Bangles doing Hazy yeah. Shade of Winter.
1: Um, yeah, I had that one, and then the other one that I wore out was this would have been the first year I moved out to LA was the
0: Singles. Soundtrack. Oh yeah, See, and that and that was definitely a, a contender in that roundtable was that singles the crow uh there's like there's a handful that um that come up in those combos but but yeah and a dude slayer doing in a devita where the, yeah. the the running time of the song is like 30 seconds shorter <laughs> because it's so much faster
1: yeah and what was <laughs> the not to derail this whole conversation no. but there was is it is it like demolition night is that what it was called
0: uh judgment night judgment night yeah, go. that was the yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, helmet and I house remember of pain, we, and yeah, uh, yeah,
1: where they were getting like metal bands and yeah, metal bands to sort of cover each other. Pearl
0: Jam was on there, like, nice. like, that's right. Slayer, body count, uh, Booyah Tribe, I yeah. think, was on. Yeah, I'm uh, this is where we'll get super derailed, but this is another weird passion of mine. This is the house of pain hat that I just got yesterday.
1: Nice, somebody <laughs> I just
0: saw on Twitter that Jump Around
1: came out 30 years ago. Yeah, like just had an
0: anniversary. Ago. Yeah, yeah and this is the, the tying music and culture and all of this stuff together you know House of Pain was Danny Boy O'Connor's punk band and Everlast was this rapper who was signed to Ice D's label who's a metalhead <laughs> and uh, his record came out and flopped and he had been dropped and DJ Muggs from Cypress Hill had this beat that Ice Cube had turned down and b Real had turned down and uh, gave it to Everlast and Everlast rapped over it and it became Jump Around no okay. And then oh, that's his, cool. his high school friend, Danny, who was a punk guy with a band called house of pain uh, became the hype man and pitched this Irish American thing. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Yeah. I remember the,
1: kil- the kilts in the video.
0: <laughs> yeah. The amazing thing about Danny boy is that he in recent years found out that the house in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where they filmed the outsiders the Outsiders yep. House, mm-hmm. uh, was about to be uh, demolished. It was, you know, run down and whatever. He bought it, restored it, moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and turned it into an Outsiders Museum. And that's what he does for a living now, is he lives in Tulsa and runs the Outsiders You're House You're kidding.
1: Museum. That's hilarious.
0: <laughs> and occasionally does limited edition <laughs> House of Paint Hats. That's
1: awesome. <laughs>
0: yeah. That's so funny. Just amazing yeah, story Bill, presentation. Bill Haters from Tulsa. Oh, no. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I did read that. Yeah. Well, he, he may even know. Because, yeah, most of the cast has been there. You know, like uh, C. Thomas Howell. And he's always, I follow him the guy on Instagram. And he's always posting pictures of, you know, that's Essie, so Essie Hinton. he's become, like, super good friends with her. And she visits there all the time. The street that the house is on has been renamed Outsiders Boulevard. And then the cross streets, like, Essie Hinton Way or something. Whoa. Um, yeah, it's uh, amazing. It's that's awesome. Turning to like a celebrity. I love that. celebrity. Yeah, yeah um, that's right. And 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 Bill, somewhere I read uh, Metallica, and I want to say that I saw him mention the Misfits. 1. Yeah, 2. he
1: so he had much like I mean he grew up in Tulsa, so like m- metal was sort of mandatory. I think it was just <laughs> that was just you know, yeah. it was like part of your like you were issued yeah you know some some metal records when you turned. 12 but he has like really interesting eclectic music taste like he like he's a big zappa fan hmm. which was always like a little out of my depth i never had you know? a
0: zappa phase it's one of those like lou reed or there's people where i recognize the cultural significance and but i just never had the like it never grabbed I'm, me i'm
1: the same i'm the same like it just it just never it like i i, I understand it intellectually yeah but it never yeah.
0: quite yeah I, I love frank zappa at the pmrc hearings i love frank zappa fighting the record label system i don't really know frank zappa music <laughs> yeah. yeah no it just was like too it,
1: it always felt like work to me like yes. it felt like stuff i should be listening to yeah. but <laughs> for whatever reason it just never yeah it never quite spoke to me
0: yeah it, it yeah it was kind of like uh eating your broccoli of rock music <laughs> yeah it
1: it felt like there was there wasn't enough candy on the medicine yeah. to me do you know what i mean
0: yeah i did like i i did appreciate dweezil zappa's uh madonna true blue guitar i don't know if you remember that i don't dweezil zappa was a thing in the 80s he had this guitar that was that had madonna painted on it <laughs> uh, but, and no, that's i it.
1: remember we used to when i was in a band in junior high school we used to make the pilgrimage to guitar center on sunset to to buy gear and i remember one of the times we went in there was a picture of dweezel a signed picture of dweezel on the
0: on the wall of guitar center and then this this is watch how i do this full circle moment i remember reading this interview with uh with frank zappa where he was talking about having kids named dweezel and Amit and moon and he said that he wanted to name one of their kids motorhead but the wife wouldn't let him (laughs) (laughs) see how i did that i just i don't know how i did it but i did it i got it i got us back you're a a skilled professional Uh, thank you very much sir uh so you are probably i mean without obviously giving anything away that you can't or shouldn't um how far are you guys into season four even as season uh well we
1: So we were two weeks away from shooting season three
0: when COVID
1: hit. And so we kind of did a a rewrite of season three as much as we could to sort of get ready, right? Because when it started, we were like, oh, this you know what? This whole COVID thing is gonna shut us down for a few weeks. We're gonna have some time to write. And then at some point, we kind of worked our way through season three scripts and we realized, oh, this is not going away anytime soon. Uh, so we asked HBO if they would let us put a writer's room together for season four. Hmm. Um, which they were nice enough to do. So we wrote season four uh entirely over Zoom.
0: I was gonna say, so the writer's room was like right, yeah. a, a so writer's which, a writer's zoom. Yeah, I can't be the yeah. first person to have come up with that horrible pun. No, it's
1: a zoom room, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um which was interesting. Like I don't know that I would choose it over like being in an actual room, but weirdly it made everything like ruthlessly efficient Mm. because there's no, you know, being in a writer's room, there's a lot of like staring at the wall, getting up for snacks and like, you know, you don't work at a hundred percent. Yeah. You know, it's, it's ebbs and flows. Um, But when you're on a zoom, it's like the silences are deafening. So it's just, you just are relentlessly moving. So we would get on at like eight or nine in the morning which is early, but because no one had to take a shower or drive to work, (laughs) (laughs) you know, basically roll out of bed, get a cup of coffee and you're at work. And so we wrote all of season four and then went back and rewrote season three based on what we had learned in season four. And then, you know, about whatever it was close to a year ago. No, it couldn't have been that long. Um, Yeah. It was, I guess it was after, after everybody got vaccinated. Uh, we, we could go back into production. So we were a vaccine mandatory production. Mm. Um, so I was testing five days a week, masks indoor and outdoor. Um, it was pretty, pretty nuts. Um, but so we shot all of season three um, and season three has just been put to bed. And normally this would be when, you know, right about now we would be putting the room together to start mm-hmm. writing season four, but it's mostly done. We start shooting again in about six weeks.
0: Wow! So that's got to be strange. I've, I've, I've often wondered about this. People in your shoes, especially you being this far ahead, that you know the episodes of season three are being parsed out right now, and so people are getting it and connecting to it and reacting to it. But your head is got to be in season four, <laughs> which you're yeah. starting. Yeah. Oh, it, it's weeks. always on every show. It's 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 not just
1: that it's that from episode to episode, like once an episode is, is done, it's, it's done. And, mm. and so uh, like, I have so many friends who are huge Seinfeld fans who will make Seinfeld references that I don't get. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I go, no, that's a Seinfeld. And I go, Oh yeah. And so they're like, how do you not know that reference? And I'm like, honestly, like once that episode is, is behind you, it's like, you never, you never look back. You're always looking forward. So I don't experience it like as a fan and yep. revel in it the way,
0: you know, fans do. Because a band puts out a record and then there's the whole album cycle, you know, or they go out and tour the record for right, right, right. a year or two and maybe come home and take a break and then start thinking about maybe getting some riff tapes together for the next yeah. record. And-
1: but I, I would imagine that, it's hard as a musician to listen to recordings of your stuff. Right. I mean, you know, people talk about this all the time, that like anything you do creatively is like a, a representation of sort of where you are in your life, you know, and every day that goes by you're a different person than the person you were when you made whatever it yeah. was. Yeah. Right. And so you would, you're not the same person, so you wouldn't do it the same way.
0: Yeah. Right? And, and for us as the, you know, when you're the audience member, it, it it can take you back to the time and place and the person you were when you first connected to that piece of art, which is for sure. Know.
1: Which, you know, it, the the appeal of, I mean, it's it's why I you know most of what I listen to when I just listen to stuff is stuff that I listened to when I was, you know, 16 or 17 years Same.
0: old. Absolutely. Because there's
1: like a comfort food thing to that.
0: You know, I even read something uh and it was kind of kind of scarily resonant for me but I read something about uh, people with OCD and maybe a little depression that we enjoy rewatching shows because somewhere subconsciously we know how everything ends. And so whatever anxieties we might normally have when watching a drama unfold. Yeah. Uh, well, that's I, interesting. I read that and I was like, oh man, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, that's why I've been through the Sopranos five times and yeah, <laughs> Mad yeah, Men yeah. Three Oh, times that's really and, interesting you know, yeah
1: you don't have that like fear of the unknown that's kind of cool
0: yeah and I did uh, I haven't I've only done the second season of Barry once but I did the first season like three times oh wow uh, yeah but it is interesting to, to go but to realize that like oh yeah there probably is something in me that's like comforted by you know even though, even though you, you, you know something terrible is going to happen, you also know sort of what comes out. Or The Office, that's another one I've seen so many times and watched with my kids. And, you know, Jim and Pam isn't stressful because I know they end up together. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you can sort of like enjoy the, you know. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, no, I never thought about it that way. Yeah, it's been sitting with me since I read that. Well, Alec, I, I will, last thing I'll, I'll run through with you. Do you ever get the opportunity to get behind... A drum kit? Uh, you know, what's
1: funny is my my friend, Sean, uh, moved into a new place uh, and he's got a music room. So we've been threatening. And in honor of that, I actually I got very excited and I bought a, a new kit that Amazing. was the kit that Megadeth used on a couple of their tours. And the video of them playing in Bulgaria. I don't know if you've ever seen that one where they're, yep. in, they're playing in a rainstorm. Yep. From, I know yeah. those drums.
0: Uh, is that from the uh, Big Four concert in Bulgaria? Yeah. Sofia? Yeah. yeah. Wow, so that's yeah. probably, that would be a Sean Drover drum kit.
1: I believe that's correct.
0: Wow, oh, yeah. amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> I, know.
1: I know. Yeah. So I haven't really played them yet, but I, I, I drove down to San Diego and got them from a guy who I guess was affiliated somehow with
0: yeah well you know what like, uh, he had mustang a Dave was,
1: mustang guitar that was one of the most beautiful guitars i've ever seen
0: mustang lived in fallbrook um right uh north of san diego uh, for a number of years so that tracks that there would be some oh maybe that's the connection he's been yeah. in nashville for a while now but but it tracks that that must be because san it was diego just season.
1: north of san diego yeah i don't remember yeah. exactly what what town it was, but it was just north of San Diego. I, I wonder if that's the connection.
0: Yeah, maybe it's Fallbrook where you went. <laughs> uh, podcast listeners are, are definitely being bored to sleep by this because I talk about it a lot. But I, Megadeth is the band that got me into metal. I have yeah. a friend who was into hair metal like Cinderella and Crocus and stuff like that. And he bought Peace cells on cassette at the mall by mistake, thinking it was going to be like a hair metal record and put it on. I was like, what the hell is this garbage? And gave it to me just to get rid of it. And I oh, was at the I time, punk and new wave and whatever. Put it in my boom box. And, and it's one of those vivid, you know, can't tell you what I ate yesterday, but yeah. I can vividly remember sitting in my suburban bedroom, you know, wake up dead, blasting out of the boom box yeah. speakers for the first time. And it was yeah, a bolt of lightning could have hit me. And it has, and it has been one of my great joys in life. A number of years later, you know, I've, I've gotten to, interview mr mustaine uh multiple times a couple of years ago i guess now it was during the pandemic he did a book recently that's an oral history of rust in peace okay and he'd had a writer who had gone and done interviews with everyone who was kind of around and associated the book was going to press like it was finished and done mustaine called up his management and said you know one guy that we didn't talk to, who we should have, is Slash, because uh, Slash actually almost joined Megadeth before Rust in Peace. He was having some issues with guns, and we were jamming together. And uh, he's like, "I so you know I'd really like to have Slash in the book." So they asked me if I would interview Slash for the book. And of course I said, yes, but I also said, well, if the book's finished and you did it with another writer and it's an oral history, I understand that you want to just kind of integrate the slash stuff in there, but what if, because I ended up having a great conversation with slash. And I was like, if we can get slash to say yes to this, what if I just adapt my interview with him and, and you just make it forward by slash. And that's what we did. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> so, that's very cool. Uh, yeah. The rest of peace book has a forward by slash as told to me. Oh, that's Uh, very cool. So I have my name in there and everything, which was pretty rad. But uh, yeah, and he was he he the story he he told me, he was very candid. Uh, He was like, yeah, me and uh, David Ellison and David Mustaine were in an apartment in Hollywood smoking crack together. (laughs) I was like, oh, and he's like, yeah, he's like, you know, alcohol is like a go out and go to the bar and hang out with your friends kind of drug. He's like, when you smoke crack, you just sit in the dark in the afternoon and smoke crack and, and riff. And uh, so, yeah, we're jamming together and there was, there was, you know, talk of me maybe joining Megadeth and leaving guns, but, you know, I was high on crack.
1: (laughs) So that would have been, that would have been what, 85?
0: Uh, A little later because it would be after Appetite and before, because... uh,
1: Oh, I'm, th- the- I'm sorry. I'm, I'm thinking of Peace Cells. You're talking yeah, about... Easy got mistake. It, got got it, got, got yeah. Okay, I got, no, my, easy, I got my Easy records. mistake. Because, yeah, because Peace Cells was it. the one that got me into metal. Yeah, so, no, because yeah. that that I remember. That was high school for me.
0: Yeah. So I was um, trying to
1: get the the date, right? Like, I I peg everything to... Yeah, you know, Peace Where P-C- was P-C- I when I first heard it?
0: Peace Cells was 86, which is crazy yeah. because 86 was Rain and Blood, Master of Puppets, yeah. uh, Dark Angel, Darkness Descends, uh, you know, just like every... Just about every important record there in that genre. Well,
1: it's the same with movies, right? It's so interesting where you go back and you look at like the Academy Awards, you know, in the seventies, and like every (laughs) nominated movie in the seventies is like one of the greatest movies of all time. Yeah,
0: you know, there's got there be just there has to be something about that—an intangible, the creativity inspiring other creativity or something. Yeah, and also, I mean,
1: I I hope it's not a you know sort of a a predictor of the way creative stuff has turned into product but things feel just much more disposable you know yeah and and I also think it's because they don't physically exist
2: yeah well we also have
1: something about you holding a record or a cd as opposed to like it's just this ethereal thing that you know you you listen to through your phone and don't have
0: well and we have we have access to so much which is great but it's a blessing and a curse right because there is so much and we can all kind of just like with you know news media we can all kind of pick our silos and go you know if if, if you're somebody who loves reality shows about cooking you've got like three networks yeah. and a hundred shows to watch and you yeah. might never see another show about anything else yeah well it is
1: to. it's the unfortunate like downside of of having so much control and so much access. I did a uh, I did a, a very silly, goofy TV pilot years ago with uh, bare naked ladies, um, wow. who are the greatest guys on earth. Um, I just had an absolute ball with them, and creatively, just off the charts great. And they had a really interesting perspective because they were a, a successful band, kind of pre and post internet. Mm-hmm. So their relationship with their fans had really changed and the way their fans consumed music had changed. And they had like, you know, they, they had sort of bridged the the gap between when people bought records and when yeah. people streamed and when people's relationship with a band was just like looking at a poster versus like, Oh, I can go on their website and I can email them, mm-hmm. you know, or go to their, whatever, their MySpace page at the time. But they said it was really interesting that, the amount of control that consumers have leads them to expect and demand more control. Mm -hmm. Right. So like when we were kids, you would buy a record and the songs would be in an order and Mm -hmm. then you'd flip it over and then the songs would be in an order. And I still, to this day, I can't listen to any of the records that I used to listen to over and over and over again without knowing what the next song is. Right? Absolutely. And so it is this thing of like, you know, when you hear a song like on the radio or if I'm just streaming or Spotify or whatever, that song ends and you go, huh? And you, and it's not because you're just so used to hearing them in order. Yeah. But they said that their fans, because they had so much control and because they could listen to songs in any order and however they wanted, had gotten much more like it had gone from like emails, like they get on the bus after a show and they'd read emails from you know, from kids who were just at the show. And it went from with, with notes. you guys crushed it, <laughs> loved it, to yeah. you know what, you guys shouldn't open with that song. And I didn't love the arrangement of that. I thought the way that you kind of broke that song down from the record was wrong. And and they would get like they they said it was almost like uh complaints. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It was almost like customer service where people are like, Hey, um, Just so you know, I spent my money and I didn't get what I wanted. Um, So here are my grievances, and they expected them to be like addressed, right? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's not just a suggestion. I found that doing doing uh, panels and things like on Silicon Valley, like when you do the Q and A part of a panel, you know, people would raise their hands and go, "Hey, um, I didn't like the way that this episode was done, and I feel like you should have done this instead." And you'd go, okay, that's not really a question. <laughs> but their expectation was that you were gonna go, man, I'm so sorry we did that. Um, you know what? Here's how we're gonna make it up to you. Yeah, like they wanted,
0: they had grievances. We're gonna retcon that for you.
1: Yeah, yeah. but they wanted their they, you know, it's like I have a complaint and I need you to to address it.
0: It's like everyone, everyone is the studio now, they all have notes. And it's like, yeah, we didn't like those notes to begin with.
1: (laughs) Right. But it is, we don't want more of them. (laughs) But it's not even like, hey, just so you know, it's like, here's my problem. How are you going to fix it?
0: (laughs) Yeah. And right now, with the, uh, it's interesting, bands are dealing with, you know, with the supply chain issues and all of the the post pandemic stuff related to that and, and the demand for vinyl versus the number of pressing plants that are left. And then you have audience members who are accustomed to Amazon. So they're like, I ordered something on the internet two days ago. Why isn't it here? Yeah. This band is ripping me off, you know? And and in some cases right now, it's like kids are waiting three or four months to get their record that they pre-ordered because it's just not, you know, the plant in the Czech Republic just hasn't shipped it here yet, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and you're right. It is it, that increased access that we have to creators has also given us a, a sense of entitlement that wouldn't have
1: been. Yeah, impossible. no. And I remember reading that uh, there were labels that were thinking about releasing records split out into all the stems so that.
0: Oh yeah, that's been could, a thing. You so can that can everybody can mix.
1: mix their own yeah. version of stuff. That's been a thing. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and understandably, like, I understand why, you know, a, a band would be like,
0: oh, sure, here you go.
1: <laughs> no, like, that's our job. Like, yeah. isn't that what you're paying for is for us to
0: yeah. do the work and I'm, right? I'm, I'm, imagine directing a movie and then just releasing it with like, you know, four alternate takes in a row for a yeah. scene. Or just releasing the dailies. Yeah. Right? Where it's just, here's everything we shot. Cut your own movie. <laughs> Knock yourselves out.
1: <laughs> I can't wait to see what you do with the soundtrack.
0: Oh, man. That feels like something that's bound to happen at some point, actually. <laughs> yeah, it does. It. I,
1: I will say uh, a friend of mine um, knew somebody that worked on the rock band games. Uh-huh. He found uh, an online repository of all of the rock band songs split out. So there's something like 240 songs where like, I don't know if you remember, there was a viral thing of David Lee Roth's vocal. From, oh yeah, uh, from running with the devil. <laughs> yeah, I think that's where this came
0: from. of oh wow
1: is 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 that because running with the devil is one of the songs where like you've got the the bass, the drums, yeah. guitar, and David Lee Roth's vocal all all split out. And I spent like three days, like ten hours a day, just listening to one after another after another after another of those.
0: I mean, speaking of Pasadena,
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I used to see those guys. Wow. That was like the most exciting thing. Is yeah.
0: Yeah. And see them around even. Yeah. Oh yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. No, David Lee Roth would go like through the in and out. Yeah. That's insane.
0: That yeah, for me exciting. as a kid from Indiana is just insane. You know, we had, you know, John Cougar Mellencamp and uh, you know, I mean we had like David Letterman and Axel Rose, but they'd move. <laughs> Right, you know, there's. Right. we didn't have many local. You know, Kurt Vonnegut, he stuck around. You know, we had a <laughs> <He's> few. That's <okay. laughs> not, not too shabby. Yeah, that's yeah. something. You know, yeah, when he when he did his cameo and Back to School, I was a kid that was like, ah, so he's from Indiana. There you go. <laughs> yeah, we know him. Well, dude, I could talk to you forever, and uh, well, this was uh, this again. is super fun. This was yeah, no, no I'm, I'm
1: glad we connected, and yeah,
0: yeah, I never quite know how to phrase it sometimes when i'm inviting people on where it's like no, you don't have to be a this, this isn't scholars of metallica this is the, you know metallica is the the anchor and kind of the the uh the glue between all of the guests but it very much goes off and oh good stuff. no i
1: mean i i like i said when i scrolled through the the list of like past guests i'm like what the fuck <laughs> My, why does he want to talk to me on this it's like well, so, well you, like I, I said the venn diagram of me and rob halford is not exactly like
0: but the venn diagram of you and say you know like i mentioned aziz ansari his first big netflix special back he's wearing a ride the lightning shirt and i remember seeing that and thinking oh, wow. like thinking like oh is that uh you know is that just like a you know three hundred dollar melrose avenue vintage shirt or is he a metallica fan and i my investigative reporter had on, and started digging around. And there's footage of Aziz in like a small comedy club in New York, once upon a time, playing Metallica songs on guitar. And then I've okay. subsequently seen interviews where he's talked about how he was a big Metallica fan as a teenager. So oh, that's I, I, I have a, a running list in Asana of uh, my my guest wish list. Yeah, as far back as seeing the pilot for Barry when it aired, uh, I put down Bill Hader and Alec Berg. Oh cool. <laughs> because of that poster. So it's like things yeah, like that yeah, that yeah, are yeah. like sort of in the ether and then yeah, I forgot about it and it's on a list with a bunch of other people and then when this season started and I heard Metallica in the episode again, I was like I was like, oh wait, okay, and and here we are. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's why you're yeah. here. Sometimes um, dreams do come true. They do. <laughs> Yeah, you can tell somebody you did the podcast of the guy who, as told to the forward by Slash to Dave Mustaine. There you boy. go. <laughs> yeah, uh, with greatness. And did I ask? Um, you, did I ask you this uh, before we got on? Um, the Napalm Death song in Silicon Valley. Yeah, that wasn't you, or was you?
1: Uh, that was not my idea. That I believe was Dan O'Keefe, who's one of our writers, um, who grew up in new york but is a has a real like punk street cred like real like encyclopedic like hardcore fan and i think we just needed a sound
0: yeah Um, for the bitcoin mining or the yeah and initially when
1: we wrote it it was just like an alert sound or something um like i said going back to like when you write something and you go okay what's the inspired version of that Yeah, and that was one where dan mentioned that there's a napalm death song that's like a second and a half
0: long world's (laughs) shortest song
1: yeah and i was like what i had never heard of it and Uh, so he pulled it up on the internet and it was just like that and we were like that's great
0: and it's the it's the perfect character who would do that
1: yeah 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 that's what i mean it's like it was i felt like that was the inspired version of it
0: yeah and and those are those things when you you sort of uh you know when you come from this uh metal punk culture or you know let's put too hoity-toity of a term on it but those little moments peppered in a show like silicon valley that's already great without those moments you just feel this extra little charge of validation like oh yeah it's my people
1: it's it's somebody in there (laughs) the term dog whistle has gotten a little loaded of late but yeah you know in the in the agnostic version of dog whistle you know that has no
0: no white supremacist connotation. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: No. Uh, no topspin on it. Um, yeah. It's a dog whistle to the fans.
0: Yeah. Well, we hear it. <laughs>
1: yeah. I guess eas- Easter egg is the is the non politically charged term now.
0: I just Easter egg, not dog I, whistle. I just learned literally yesterday the origin of the term Easter egg. I,
1: I know what an Easter egg is in a
0: game, but is that was there a well, specific Easter
1: egg that was apparently in-
0: there was a specific Easter egg that was in old early game that was like a room that you found and it had the name one of the game developers names in the room I'll I'll have to email you the name of the game because of course now I forget but there's apparently uh, a more widely accepted
1: right right now by the way there are 30 people in your podcast audience who are screaming the name of the game right now
0: they're punching their steering wheel (laughs) In traffic somewhere, um, maybe this is where post production comes in. I'll come back and do it or a, right. drop it in. But uh, and then there's a more widely accepted one, which I'd learned this one, and then it was corrected to be the other one. But there's but apparently in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, uh, which was another formative. Saw that when I was eleven. my, yeah. my older brother. Yeah. Uh, apparently. There was a day on set in that house where they were shooting over Easter. And so they had like all the kids of the production come and do an Easter egg hunt in the Rocky Horror Picture Show house. Yeah. And after the Easter egg hunt, they hadn't found all of the Easter eggs. And supposedly, when you watch the Rocky Horror Picture Show, you can find literal Easter eggs. Oh, no kidding. On the set that were undiscovered at the time, but made it into the movie. oh that's cool supposedly it's a combination of this video game and the rocket horror picture thing is where we got easter egg from so that's very cool the tradition continues where (laughs) you suffer shows up in silicon valley (laughs) (laughs) i heard the call (laughs) awesome man we'll have a good rest of your night thanks for giving me so much of your time of course of course
1: no my my pleasure yeah no let me know if you need anything else or whatever yeah man this is fun
0: yeah, super fun, right. dude. Really appreciate cool. it.
1: All right, yeah, you got it. All right, cheers. All right, buddy. Hope it turns out well.
0: Oh, it, it's already awesome. <laughs> All, right. All right, cool. Have a good one. See you. Bye.